0: And now, coming to you live from the Gershon Room, high above the Cruise Street Motel 6, it's Jonathan Strand and Gary K. Wolfe with very special guest Nora Jemison on the Cruise Street Podcast! Yeah, no, no, no.
1: And well, welcome to the first of our, <laughs> our podcasts, Nora. Uh, <laughs> Thank you. Thank and you. I mean, it's, it's, we, we planned this some time ago, and of course we want to talk about uh, the city we became, which is out next week, I believe. Yes, on the pub 24th. Date ac- pub date is actually my birthday, 24th. <laughs> wow. All right. Well, uh, early happy birthday. That. Thank you. And and the other thing that occurred to me just a moment ago as I'm looking at the book now is mm-hmm. that The City We Became, that title takes on an ominous meaning nowadays, doesn't it?
2: Oh, goodness. Well, I, I guess I hadn't thought of it that way. Um, it could. It could, depending on the interpretation.
1: Well, I mean, it's your fault. I, I, I thought I'd just let you know it's your fault that this whole COVID-19 thing I now visualize as Sickly white tentacles <laughs> coming out of people walking down the street. <laughs>
2: that's, 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 that's horrifying. Please I don't. Know, it's <laughs> it's bad enough. Don't make it worse. <laughs> okay.
0: Well, what we should probably start off with, I guess, is the idea that there's the, the city we became is Joanna's Gary says next week, and it's really been a long time coming, I guess, because you know there was a story out on tour three or four years ago. How long has this been gestating with you?
2: Uh, Around the time that I began that story. Um, So uh, Tor.com takes a little while to publish things, so I must have sold it to them at least a year ahead of time, possibly more like 18 months. Um, So when I wrote that short story uh, called The City Born Great, um, when I wrote that short story is when I started thinking, you know, it'd be really, it, it doesn't make sense for New York to be a single person. Um, you know, the, none of this really kind of meshes with the way I'm thinking about things. Um, but I just kind of put that on the back burner because when you're trying to write a short story, you really don't need to do too much. What if, um, or it won't be a short story. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that was pretty much it. Um, I, I, now that story
0: forms basically the prologue to the new novel. And I guess what it sets up this idea that cities are, that they come to life as they age, as they become more complex and more complicated, they develop a, if you, for want of a better term, soul, and then eventually manifest into a great city, a, a living thing. Where did the idea for that come from for you?
2: a combination of, of just sort of life experiences and just sort of the way that I, I visualize, or I, I enjoy kind of creating mythologies. Um, you know, people talk about that as world building, but it's really just fantasy building um, for lack of a better description. But um, so, I mean, first of all, there was the fact that when, when you, you've probably experienced this too, when you move to a new city, um, or if you visit a new city, sometimes you have that instant feeling of, Oh, this place, I could live here. This place, mm-hmm. I feel comfortable here. I, I am welcomed here. Um, and then there are some cities where you're like, Oh, no, I want out. <laughs> the city doesn't like me. I got to go <laughs> or whatever. <laughs> um, and, and generally it's a, it's a really instantaneous thing. Cities have characters. They have uh, uh, energy that on some level, all of us respond to, I think, um, you know, and I, I feel like that's not a stretch to say. Um, and I've lived in New York on and off all my life. Uh, I felt that, that warmth and welcome here for most of the time that I've been in New York. Um, I felt it in New Orleans, the other city that I love and that I tend to write a lot about. Mm-hmm. Um, I did not feel it in Boston, where I lived for eight years. Um, Boston, very distinctly, did not want me there. Um, <laughs> I, was thinking,
1: I was thinking back on the stories. Yeah, there are a couple of stories. There's a very powerful Katrina story in How Long Till Black Future Month. As I recall, there's a story set in Birmingham, which didn't sound like too much of a pleasant place.
2: Yeah, I didn't like Birmingham. Uh-huh. Um Birmingham is where my family is from though. Ah. Um so yeah, I've got my my father's side of the family uh is from Pratt City in Birmingham. Uh to some degree the the story of Emmeline in uh in that particular story which was uh called uh Red Dirt Witch. Right. Um Emmeline is based on family stories that I've heard about my great-grandmother. Um, who was really, I didn't know her name for the longest time, but it was Emma. Mm. Um, and, uh, you know, the family always kind of told the story that, um, you know, after her husband left or vanished or something happened to him, nobody really knows, um, uh, she made her living kind of like telling fortunes and, and you know, doing herbal healing and things like that. Um, so I just kind of extrapolated from that. But Birmingham was not welcoming to me either, and and you know I don't necessarily have to love a city or feel that welcome to write about it. Um, It's just I have ties to Pratt City and to Birmingham, so I felt like it was kind of family duty. Um,
1: So that yeah, Mm -hmm. I can see that. Well, I think one of the things that people should be reassured about in uh, anticipating the city we became is that it it really is a celebration of the city, and probably at a time when we need celebrations of cities. and it, it, it's it, it, as ominous as what happens and it is, uh, it seems to me you nailed what I know of New York City. And, for example, uh, I mean, I've spent a lot of time in Manhattan and some time in Brooklyn. I mm-hmm. spent one week, maybe a long time ago, in Staten Island. And the minute I read about your Staten Island, I was back there. I recognized that, <laughs> yes, they feel like the back 40 of New York. Oh, no. <laughs> well, no, I mean, she, the, 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 they, they, That comes across. There's. There's a sense of they're protected from New York by the ferry, but they're also connected to it. And yeah. uh, everybody I met in Staten Island felt, this, felt the same way that your character does.
2: Huh. We, I mean, like, I, I, I did try to make sure that I met people from Staten Island who, you know, I didn't want to kind of base it on a few people. Right. Um, uh, and I, and I went to Staten Island and I drove around and I had a, a local, um, actually orbits Lauren Penapinto, who is uh, the art director there is from Staten Island. And she actually gave me some places to visit to just sort of like get a read on the character of that borough. Cause that was the other thing I hadn't, I've been living in New York, like half my life uh-huh. and I hadn't been to Staten Island in at least 10 years. Um, and, you know, I live in Brooklyn, which is literally right across the bridge right. from it, but I never go there. Yeah. Um, and I, I needed to see it and feel it for myself and kind of base my feeling on more than just the stereotype of the city. Um, but you know, the stereotype is. Well, jo- jo- Jonathan, just, Jonathan, this
1: case. Jonathan, weren't you married in Staten Island? Yeah. My wife's from Staten Island. I've been to Staten Island a okay. number of I, times. I take back everything I said, just for mm-hmm. fine.
0: So, I mean, okay. I, I was actually going to ask at one point. I don't know if it falls into the category of a sensitivity read, but did you get a Staten mm-hmm. Islander to do a sensitivity read on the city we became?
2: Uh, I mean, I consider the, the people that I talked to who yeah. gave me kind of pre research reads, um, I consider them to be more, you know, the, that, that was it. That was the research read. I don't really think of it as a sensitivity read because, you know, the Staten Islanders are not a protected class of people. Um, <laughs> there, there, are, there are not uh, policies and, and <laughs> stereotypes that are likely to harm Staten Islanders going forward. Um, that said, um, I did... You know, I'm aware of the fact that, uh, as a, as a kind of Brooklynian New Yorker, um, there's gonna be some pushback after people read this book, um, on the way that I decided to interpret Staten Island's character and, and mm. some other things of that. Yeah. Um, and I'm prepared for that. I'm, I'm braced for it. And well, I, I will I, remind people that this is a truth. I, 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 I guess <laughs> what
0: I'd say about this is just so that readers understand or listeners understand, because unlike the three of us, they've not read the book, uh, mm. that with the book basically, deals with the um the the awakening of Staten of of New York, of each of the boroughs and the cities itself uh, mm. awakening avatars and in the, as the story on plot unfolds in the first portion of it we meet an avatar from Manhattan, one for Brooklyn, one for Staten Island and so on. And so they're mm. actually physical people that who we who we meet. Um yeah. and so that's why it becomes so clear. In fact, I wanted to ask you, did you feel that you were that you had to be careful about how you plotted the beginning of the book because some of it seemed to lead logically one to the other of, well, oh, we've met Manny in Manhattan. We've we've met the the, the character from Brooklyn, from Queens. And it just seems like, well, we have to tick off one after the other being introduced. That kind of almost superhero team team origin kind of story.
2: Well, that was intentional. Um, You know, I... I kind of envision this story as uh hmm, as an American Sentai story. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if any of you are into anime. Um, mm-hmm. but uh I I you know, my favorite uh, thing growing up was pretty much anime. And Sentai is a a category of anime, a subgenre of anime in which and I'm sure you've seen it, um, five people from different walks of sure. life um, must come together <laughs> look at each other, form a giant robot, and probably kick a monster's ass. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, so, um, and I, I intentionally, like, I wanted to have some fun with this one. Um, so it's it's got a a Sentai team structure, um, or you know, if you want to do do an American style, an American superhero team up structure. Um, and that was intentional. Um, you know, I, I didn't expect that readers would be, um, surprised by the fact that, uh, you know, okay, mm. next must be Staten Island. Um, I, I thought they would anticipate that and be looking forward Very to, much. okay, we see, let's see what Queens is like. Let's see what the Bronx is like. Um, that was the goal.
1: I think one of the things also is that uh, when I say it's a celebration is the diversity of characters who come to represent the different boroughs. If you mm-hmm. go back to movie stereotypes of the 40s and 50s, you know, the kid from Brooklyn and all the war movies, uh, uh, Queens is Archie Bunker and this sort of thing. So mm-hmm. these are unexpected avatars uh, in, in the sense of uh, previous stereotypes of New Yorkers, mm-hmm. And I, I thought that was wonderful, the idea of having a Tamil mathematician uh mm-hmm as uh, uh let me see that's queen of queens right yeah that was queens and and mm-hmm. and it's interesting that that strikes me as just being a kind of joyful feel that these people are going to come together and you know that the the, the real epic battle is going to be in volumes two and three um mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. but right now we're uh, and I, I think i said this in my review you they they have to do a lot of heavy lifting these have to be realistic new yorker characters that mm-hmm. we could recognize in a realistic novel, they mm-hmm. have to be part of that team that you just described, which is you know, which is the fellowship, mm-hmm. and they have to be avatars of individual areas. That mm-hmm. must have taken a lot of balancing. Uh, um, uh, some, I mean, you know, I
2: I agree. the The media stereotypes of New York are exactly what I was kind of deliberately trying to push against. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wasn't thinking so much of like the older stereotypes, although, you know, I mean, like these days, Captain America is a great example. Well, yeah. Uh, uh you know, and I'm, I'm a giant fan of those movies uh, from the Marvelverse, but, um, you know, what I was thinking more of was like Friends or uh, <laughs> Seinfeld or, uh, <laughs> Girls, you know, which are yeah. more modern versions of the same thing where you see this sort of strange, Bastardized New York where there's never any people of color and right. they never leave Manhattan and you know they all they all live in the Lower East Side or you know maybe in Williamsburg and and that's just anybody who's actually lived here knows of course that New York is a, a lot more than that and very different. Um, and so that was really all I was trying to do. I wasn't really so much pushing against those stereotypes as trying to capture the New York that I've always known. Ah, okay. um, you know, and I've lived here on and off since I was probably three, I think, or two when we first moved here. Um, you know, and I, I consider myself like half New Yorker and half Southerner, half mm-hmm. uh, from Alabama. Um, but, you know, the half of me that is New York has never seen anything like Seinfeld as, you know, sort of classic New York. Right. Um, you know, I, there, that's a part of New York, sure, but you know, um, to, to have a show like, um, Agent Carter, which I really loved, but, um, set in an era when, like, basically, they, they never went to Harlem. <laughs> you know, there was, <laughs> there was never any acknowledgement of, like, all those other parts of New York, like the parts of New York that they were depicting were, off from what they were in the actual time when that story was supposedly taking place. Um, they were in Hell's Kitchen, and Hell's Kitchen didn't have any immigrants in it. And I'm like, wow, well, uh-huh. that's, that's, not, that's not the New York good. That well, anybody-
1: that's, that's what I meant about celebrating the new New York to some mm-hmm. extent. The, the way New York is, I saw something of the same variety of characters in, uh, in the Victor Laval novel, The Changeling, which mm. just went part, went to places in New York that I knew were there, but I'd never been there, I'd never thought about mm. uh, them mm-hmm. really, and it was I thought that was also a love letter to New York. I don't know if you're familiar with the novel or not. No, but I
2: haven't read that one yet. Um, but, Victor's
1: stuff I, I very much enjoy, but I haven't read that particular one. Well, that brings me to another point. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, the only two authors that are mentioned in the novel mm-hmm. are Ralph Ellison and H.P. Lovecraft. Did
2: really? I mention Ralph? Oh yes, I did.
1: Okay, I forgot about that. <laughs> and then, okay, that that is one weird narrative space to be between Ralph Ellison on the one hand and H.P. Lovecraft on the other.
2: Oh, it covers okay. a lot of territory. It leaves lots of room for for wiggle room. <laughs> um, I think there's a quote from uh, from Thomas Pynchon somewhere. In, oh no, did oh, I take that out in revisions? I no, know. I think
1: I took that out in revisions. Whoops. I, I okay. would have noticed that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> But, I mean, uh, part part of the reason I noticed that, and I, I was on Twitter with somebody else who had, had noticed the same thing in the novel, is that w- and this other person and I, I forgot who it was, both tended to read Invisible Man as though it were a science fiction novel. Huh. Because, well, it starts off <laughs> with a guy... Invisible Man? <laughs> well, the reason I picked it up when I was a teenager was because it was called Invisible Man, and then <laughs> it kind of, kind of drew me in, and... Um, mm. But it starts off with a guy hiding, you know, in a in a a basement lit with thousands of uh, light bulbs and stealing electricity, and he thought this this is cool. This is a Mm -hmm. cool thing. But then when his character comes to New York, the experience of it, I don't know, it it vaguely seemed to be uh, reflected to me. The more obvious thing, obviously, is is Lovecraft, and I don't know how much is it. I don't know. I don't want to give away anything here, but the Mm -hmm. Lovecraft connection is fairly evident and becomes more evident as the novel goes along. Is that fair enough to say?
2: Yeah. I mean, that that's in the short story. So I consider it a okay. fair game to discuss, um, although it's less complex in the short story, um, largely because it was a short story and I was trying mm. to keep it from coming into a novel at that point. Um, but, you know, I think anyone that has read um, like just even basic Lovecraft stuff, Um, But specifically, the story that I was engaging with the most was uh, of of his fiction um, versus his letters um, was uh, the horror at Red Hook. Right. And um, when when I mean, I read that years and years ago um, first and I was like, you know, what's I I, I didn't really like it. Um, And it didn't occur to me until much, much later that that was Red Hook in New York. Mm-hmm. Um, because it just it felt so alien to like he mentions it in the story, but I just kind of glossed over it. Um And and it felt so alien to the New York that I know, Um, you know. And of course now Red Hook is known for like IKEA.
1: But, um, <laughs> but, um, the horror at Red Hook. <laughs> 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 you get lost <laughs> enough, yeah. <laughs>
2: Um, but, uh, yeah, so, I mean, it, it didn't feel like the Red Hook that I knew. It didn't feel like the New York that I knew. Um, and, uh, anybody that kind of has, has not read that story, you know, just to kind of like sum it up, um, or the piece of it that's relevant. Um, you know, he describes the people of Red Hook, New York, which is this neighborhood of Brooklyn, um, as if they are, are entities of, uh, mm, I don't even know what to call it. worshippers of evil, worshippers of evil, alien, otherworldly entities. Um, if as if they are themselves otherworldly entities and subhuman, um, and that's yeah. what I was engaging with Lovecraft's tendency. Which, which
1: is a, it's, it, interestingly enough, it's the mm-hmm. same story that uh, Victor Laval is responding to in the Ballad yeah. of Black Tom. And yeah. it's hard not—I mean, I—I I read the story. When I was a kid, and I didn't no idea who a Red Hook was. I mean, I recognized immediately the racism of the story because you can't avoid yeah. it. Uh, uh-huh. e- even even down to, I mean, he he, he does say things about. He comes about, right out and says it, yeah. But but, but, he, but he comes right out and says it. But he also uses code words like "swarthy," mm-hmm. uh, which sort of covers Jews and Italians and Eastern Europeans. And um, yeah,
2: but then he actually says Jews in Eastern <laughs> Europeans. <laughs> yeah, he does. Mm. <laughs> so, yeah.
1: I recently himself.
2: reread it and it is not subtle
1: but like I still missed a lot of it when I read it. But but isn't there something interesting about the fact that everybody has noticed how awful Lovecraft has been and yet look at the number of novels that have sort of I don't know re- novels and stories that have responded to him have have sort of recognized the power of of the cosmic horror but mm-hmm. at the same time, dealing with the fact that he was... I mean, uh, kids Johnson wrote her a novella about uh, about his absolute inability to deal with women characters. Oh, wow, uh, really? Huh. Uh, so uh, The Ballad of Velvet Bow is a Lovecraft oh, story that. rewritten completely with women. Ah,
2: okay, okay. I have not read that one, but I've seen it mentioned lots.
1: Yeah, that, I think Ruthann Emrys had a story. Uh, there was certainly Lovecraft Country. Mm-hmm. Uh, in mm-hmm. other right. words, there's there's a TV show, off. yeah, mm. exactly. Well, yeah, it's going to be a TV show. And mm. what else? There was. Um, it's been a whole range. of... Like, uh,
0: I guess the question is, oh, excuse me, wh- when did you decide in the evolution of the city we became that that was the foil that you wanted to use in your story? That there was that the, the, the Lovecraftian Cthulhu, well, the Lovecraftian space was one that mm-hmm. would give you the the story material to react against with what you were do- mm. doing with your story.
2: Um, yeah, I mean, specifically, I mean, I, I have a lot of respect for Lovecraft's ability to capture fear.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, and I think that's what a lot of people respond to is, is he's able to articulate dread. And the nature of his dread was fear of his fellow human beings, uh, mm-hmm. and dehumanizing them in the <laughs> process. Mm. Um, but you know, that doesn't necessarily mean it wasn't real fear. You know, you, you don't, you don't have to necessarily respect his fear. You can respect the way that he described it. Um, and, and so, I mean, if you're trying to capture, um, existential fear, um, Lovecraft is a great person to go to for that. And since in this novel, uh, right in the story, I'm speaking to the existential fear of This city that I love, this, this, this place, these, this group of people being threatened. um, You know, I wanted to capture that sense of fear. I wanted to, you know, kind of rework it a little bit. Um, And you know, there's a point in the story, and I don't, I, I don't mind spoiling this part because I think it's relatively uh, obvious. But mm. I mean, there's a point in the story where, where you know, one of the characters points out that Lovecraft was basically right. Lovecraft saw the people of New York City as 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 a force. Yeah. Um, he saw them as mm-hmm. uh, something something energetic, something collective, contributing to an overall energy or an overall. You know, in various stories, an overall sort of sense or feel or life of the city. The only thing that I feel like he got wrong um, was that he saw that that life and that energy as sinister, um, and he saw those people as as terrifying. I I see it the other way. I see that energy, um, that sense of welcome, comes from those people. Um, that sense of this this city is a good place for artists, uh, a good place for people who want to just live their own lives without having to conform to uh, custom or whatever. That's coming from those same people that he was afraid of. To me, that's a welcome, that's a wonder. Um, so, you know, that's the only thing I'm kind of engaging.
1: I think with. it's true. I, I, I think the other thing that uh, uh, let's put in a plug here for mainstream readers who may not normally pick up fantasy or science fiction novel is mm-hmm. that. There's a realistic New York novel in here that deals with racism, that deals with real estate scams, that deals with mm. non-profit fundraising. I mean, to me, <laughs> one of the more chilling scenes in it, and this is because I used to be a, a dean at the university, was mm. the idea that somebody offers, what, a million dollars to the Bronx Art Center if they will put up this horrible exhibit. Yep,
2: yeah, yep, yeah, yep. Yeah. Well, um, that's it's i i try to not pull too many things from my real life but my father was a director of the Bronx River Art Center for ah. a while um and so you know i've grown up in in art life and nonprofit life um and uh you know it's it's impossible to be around these different uh you know kinds of of nonprofit i don't even know what to call it entities and so forth without Picking up just what the horrors are in there. Oh yeah,
1: exactly. Yeah, but I guess I guess the point I was getting at with that was that there is this uh, existential Eldritch horror uh, that that clearly is going to dominate the battle. But at the same time, New York is not an idealized New York. It's, it, it it does have bad cops and it. it does have mm-hmm. horrible real estate scammers. In other words, I think any New Yorker reading this, apart from the Lovecraftian bits. Would recognize the New York they live in the good and the bad good that was that was
2: my intention oh New York is a living entity living entities have good and bad sides you know they're they're three dimensional people um New York has become a person. I want to show that New York's got ugliness as well as you know that there's 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 wonderful things that i that I absolutely love about being here, but I try not to be. You know, rosy-eyed about it, or Mm. wear rose-colored glasses. Let's put it that way. Um, I don't know what rosy-eyed. Certainly, there's that idea that
0: (laughs) there's there's that idea in the book that gentrification is a problem, that threats to the arts are a problem, but that community is what will overcome those things ultimately, and what gives the city, I guess, its real value. Well,
2: that's that's the fantasy of it. Um, You know, I. I wrote this because, on some level, I am seeing the New York that I have loved all my life slowly die, um, and I think that these are the existential threats um, that loom over it. Uh, like, um, you know, the, the the real estate scam um, is a thing that is happening in my neighborhood. I live in Bed Stuy. Um, mm. Ongoing thing. We've been there. There. If you decide to look up newspaper articles about it, I can share them with you. But, um, but it's been an ongoing problem because Bed Stuy is a beautiful community of, um, you know, hundred year old brownstones, uh, you know, just gorgeous buildings. Um, but it has been up until lately a working class black neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, there is now, a, a kind of almost concerted multi-pronged effort to steal that neighborhood from the people that have been here forever. Yeah. And literally that is stealing. Um, literally yeah. that includes, um, deed theft is a new thing. Yeah. Um, so, so people will find an old person living in a beautiful old brownstone. Um, they will, you know, use various means online and otherwise to steal their identity and basically steal the deed, sell the place. And then the old person finds out when the cops show up to evict her, so that they can start uh, the yeah. owner can start construction. Um, so this has been this is, you know, these existential threats um, feel a, yeah. on some level feel like a a tentacled monster. Closing in on the city. So, why not literalize that?
1: There's a thing that goes on here in Chicago. I don't know if it happens in New York, where it's happening with a very wealthy private school, mm. buying up units and condominiums surrounding it until they get a controlling interest so they can then force the remaining residents to move out.
2: Oh yeah, that's that's been I mean that doesn't even happen here anymore because Oh really? They yeah, it doesn't happen here anymore. It happened for a long time, but it doesn't happen here anymore because the new scam um replacing uh-huh. the old scam uh <laughs> is that they just build a whole building for the the wealthy. Um and they all buy uh condos in it and no one lives in it. Um so uh-huh. we've got entire buildings that are completely empty that are basically just used as tax write-offs and, you know, money laundering. Oh, yeah.
1: Because, yeah, the way real estate tax laws are written, you can't possibly lose money by keeping a building empty. It's bizarre.
2: Yeah, but you can lose money by renting it even to good renters. So oh. we've got entire buildings that are just completely empty.
1: Beautiful high rises, nobody in. One other aspect of New York, which most of us who don't live in New York will be surprised at, is mm-hmm. that there there is a white supremacy issue there, isn't there? Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. Well, I mean, there always has been.
1: I'm sure there always has been, but most of us associate that with the rural South, with small towns, with. Oh, uh,
2: no. You know, I, the- I, I grew up in the South and I grew up and I, I, it's basically, I've literally grown up half in the South and half in the North. It's the same shit everywhere. Um, yeah. it's, it's the flavor of it. <laughs> um, you know, um, a, a relative of mine told me once that basically down South, um they don't want you to step out of your place but they don't mind you being nearby. Um and up in the north um they they will allow you to live at a relatively equal level with them but they don't want you living in their space. Um, uh-huh. so it's, okay. It's, yeah. Um so what what I'm kind of uh, engaging with also is that we had a, an incident that, that I'm uh, kind of uh, uh, referring to in some cases, but we had an incident uh, a couple of years ago here where the Proud Boys started to develop a presence in New York. Yeah. Mm. Um, and I don't know if you're familiar with them, but the Proud Boys is a, is an organization that considers itself not white supremacist. I think they call themselves Western chauvinists or some other euphemistic Ugh, bullshit. Yeah. It's the same goddamn thing. Sorry, sorry, the profanity comes out when I start speaking. <laughs> no. Um, and uh, they, there was an incident about two years ago where they basically went rampaging through the Upper East Side. And, you know, I mean, white supremacists rampaging through one of the, the wealthiest old, uh, you know, immigrant and Jewish neighborhoods in the city – is not a thing that even I was expecting to hear. No. Uh, w- yeah, that is. Um, but it did happen. Um, so and my father's neighborhood, Williamsburg, which for most of my life was, you know, poor and um, Hasidic Jewish and uh, Puerto Rican uh, and artists. Um, around like the early 2000s, for some reason, it turned into Hipsterville. It gentrified rapidly, um, mm. and uh, European trust fund kids took it over instead. Um, and artists like my father are still kind of grandfathered in. They've got like the last of rent control, and that's the only reason they're still able to afford it. But um, suddenly, in Williamsburg, where I've lived on and off all my life, there was a bar that had been hosting white supremacist bands. Mm. And, you know, I walked Jeez. past that bar one night when I got off the L train going to visit dad, um, walked past that bar, and I had never in my life – New York has always been the kind of place where if you walk into the wrong neighborhood, sure, you're going to get some looks. Um, back mm. in the day, you would get a little more than looks. But I never felt unsafe in Williamsburg. All of a sudden, it was terrifying. Um, you, you There's a vibe when you're walking past people that hate you. You mm. you know, feel it. It's like mm. fingers. Tentacles on the back of your neck. Um, so, yeah. So, so these these are all existential threats that I have seen, experienced, witnessed, whatever, and and I see them slowly beginning to happen with greater greater intensity and greater speed, frequency. Um, in yeah, yeah, well,
1: and, and it's these it's the it's things will kill it. A friend of mine. Uh, uh, an elderly gentleman, an elderly African American gentleman, used to tell me that when he lived, he grew up in Arkansas, and he said, In Arkansas, they let you know up front that they hate you. In yeah. Chicago, you have to wonder. <laughs> <laughs> I thought, I
2: mean, yeah, yeah, that, that's a good way to frame it.
0: Um, one thing that occurred to me when I was reading uh, the city we became was. I mean, it's very much, as we've said, about the life cycle of cities, about birth, evolution, growth, the threat of death, the 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 idea that the soul of a city could be extinguished. But Mm -hmm. at least when I read it, I felt like the idea that the moment of coming alive has something to do with complexity of the city. Mm -hmm. And I guess the the one point that I wondered, and and maybe I've got the wrong side of it, is... -hmm. How it seemed, how how it seemed plausible that New York hadn't already, you know, come Mm -hmm. to life because it is, after all, one of Mm -hmm. has been one of the world's greatest cities for over Mm -hmm. a century. So, so why not before?
2: (laughs) Um, Well, my thought on it was just basically, and and this is something that's alluded to in the story um, that. Many of the cities of America um, have been ready to to make that change over for a while um, in the mythology of the story. And something has been actively impeding their development. Um, and so it probably could have happened earlier, but something got in the way, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and other cities in the United States, cities that are equally iconic, uh, Chicago, New Orleans, um, things should have happened there longer ago. Um, and and that something has been kind of interfering with the process. Um, and this is this is part of the overall mythology of the series.
1: There's a there's a, a bit at the end of I I, I not I doubt if this is connected with your series at all, but maybe it is. But at mm-hmm. the end of the story, The City Born Great, there after the part which is in the novel, mm-hmm. we jump ahead fifty years into the future and you can see that LA is just about ready to quicken i guess Mm -hmm. and i thought that was kind of a was kind of a shot at la isn't it they're 50 years (laughs) behind everybody else
2: (laughs) well i am a new yorker (laughs) um that was actually based on um a good friend of mine who was a california actually this is my cousin um who's a californian um you know is is my bellwether on california um and actually, other people that I've talked to have said something similar. The cal- that Los Angeles, that parts of California, like San Francisco, they've already got their character kind of fully developed. And in fact, they're going through a similar change as New York. Uh-huh. Um, but, uh, but LA is still kind of unformed somehow. I've never lived there. I've only visited. Uh-huh. Um, but that, that LA's character is so, just basically hollywood and hollywood is kind of pulling from so many sources at at all at the same time that there's not really like an iconic like what's the song that makes you think of la i can't think of one um (laughs) what's what's an iconic la food yeah Uh, you know this these are the things that it's still sort of missing um so that was basically
1: basically there's there's an ancient short story that i've always loved by richard matheson of all people Mm. about la called the creeping terror (laughs) And the creeping terror is L.A. I mean, L.A. Mm -hmm. is a living organism which is beginning to infect other parts of the country, which is why so many shopping malls look just like L.A. and have (laughs) L.A. (laughs) food. Oh,
2: my God, that's terrifying.
1: But at any rate, uh, do you want to say anything about what we could expect in Volume 2 or when we could expect it?
2: Uh, Well, I've only just started Volume um, 2, and it's been – it's been a struggle to write lately because, you know, you turn on Twitter oh, yeah. and, uh, well, honestly, the biggest problem I keep having is that um, Trump keeps stealing my ideas. God damn it. Uh, <laughs> you know, is, is every time I think that uh, I've written something terrifying about what could happen to America, lo and behold, it's actually happening. <laughs> um, I just recently had to remove a, a, a piece of from my outline, um, because I had sort of, well, you know, I may find a way to rework it. Um, but I had postulated that, uh, a, a fascist president might send, you know, kind of jackbooted thugs or an army or something uh-huh. in New York. And lo and behold, here's ice showing up at people's doors with mach- machine guns. Right. Um, so, you know, I, I i don 't really know how to plan around the fact that we seem to be living in a post apocalyptic novel, um, but there's not a whole lot I can do except keep writing and, and try to engage with the feelings that I'm feeling and see if I can channel that in a way that will still work um, so when I've planned for books two and three, um, let me see what I can say without spoilers. Um, there is still a threat to New York, um, uh-huh. obviously, as of the end of the book, um, the threat continues to take the form of both existential horror and, um, actual things that are happening in New York that are, that are dangerous to the city overall. Um, I mentioned, uh, the possible jackbooted thugs, um, yep. I don't know if they're going to survive, but uh, something similar to that will happen. Um, the the opening of book two is basically Brooklyn decides to run for mayor, <laughs> um, and um, she's doing it because a a politician based on a local politician politician whose last name rhymes with. Dalabino um, <laughs> I'm yeah. so sorry, I just made that up, but anyway, um but you know, huh no sorry, no oh, go ahead, oh, okay, um but so a local politician decides to run for office, and he's basically like Trump wants to be mayor, um, and that person is an agent of evil um and brooklyn is immediately like nope nope you're not going to be mayor in my city uh uh-uh. uh so she as a city councilwoman um is uniquely positioned to start uh, a mayoral campaign although it's really the avatars of new york versus uh mm. evil mayoral candidate um, are we going to
1: so, are we going to see more of jersey city <laughs>
2: uh we will we will um for reasons that i cannot discuss okay. for <laughs> personal spoilers purposes um but yes we will
0: okay good is there a title it? for book two yet? Uh,
2: no, uh, I don't actually write titles anymore. Um, I just do cities number one, cities number two, and I give them to Orbit and I let them figure it out. Because <laughs> 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 I've, I've never been good at titles, and uh, honestly, they've come up with the best titles of my books so far. I think the only one I've ever come up with that they kept was um, the, the fifth season. Okay. So, wow, what? the rest, what? yeah, the rest they made up. <laughs>
0: Let me ask you this. I mean, the first thing that occurred to me when I started reading this book and when I was looking at the book is this is a a classic version, well, a 21st version of a classic urban fantasy. Is there a hmm. set, are, are you f- familiar with or have affection for what we would consider urban fantasy? And I don't so much mean the Laurel K. Hamilton version as maybe the Charles DeLint version kind of thing, the Terry Windling version.
2: Um, I, I have read Charles de Lent, uh, or, uh, a book of his, I'm sorry, mm. a while ago. Um, but I'm a lot more familiar with the Laurel K. Hamilton version. Mm. Um, uh, and, and I see no reason to distinguish that from other urban fantasy. Sure. Um, the fact that it's kind of woman centric and, and power fantasy centric doesn't make it any less, sure. uh, interesting. Um, another urban fantasy that I've, uh, enjoyed a lot, well, I mean, uh, Neil Gaiman's Neverwhere. Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, and mangling that Neverwhere was it? Was that the one that was with the Neverwhere? Okay, okay. It was the um, I'm bad with I'm bad with names, <laughs> book <laughs> names <laughs> uh, <laughs> overall. Um, but also uh, Kate Griffin, uh, who is the the nom de plume of uh, Catherine Webb, who is also the nom de plume of, uh, oh gosh, what's her
1: other name? Oh, uh, I, I, I know, um, I just, Claire. North.
2: Claire Light. Uh, not Claire Light. Claire, Claire North. North Claire, Claire North. Yes, Claire, Claire Light is a, a person I knew, but Claire <laughs> Light. Uh, Claire North. I keep doing that. Um, Claire North. So, like, all three of those people are one person. Um, but the Kate Griffin name was what she used to do Urban Fantasy. And, uh-huh. uh, the Matthew Swift series and, uh, the Magicals Anonymous series. Um, both of which um, kind of posited that urban sorcery um, was the, the modern update on druids, um, the druids of old. Um, and it was just kind of
1: really fascinating, beautifully written stuff. I'm a giant fan of hers. That's quite um, I, I guess my sense about urban fantasy, again, having read what I thought of urban fantasies going back decades, Megan mm-hmm. Lindholm's The Wizard of Pigeons was in... Mm-hmm. But they, they were, they're mm-hmm. fantasies in which the urban setting is crucial, and you mentioned mm-hmm. Neverwhere, and mm-hmm. Neverwhere is completely dependent on, on tube stations in the London yeah. Underground. As a matter of fact, one of the first things I noticed about when you're naming a character Bronca for the Bronx or Brooklyn for Brooklyn, that's mm-hmm. a little bit like Navy, making the Seven Sisters literally Seven Sisters <laughs> in, in Neil's yeah. novel. Yeah, it's uh, a little obvious uh but it's it's but but the, the obviousness of it is what makes it really, really urban because mm-hmm. you get the sense uh, I got the sense from the uh, reading the city we became this could not take place anywhere other than New York City um, this particular story, yeah, yeah um, it, but it's woven into the fabric and it, it, mm-hmm. i'm I'm sure there are a lot of things that New Yorkers will get in the novel that non New Yorkers may not pick up on, Maybe. and I think it should be that way,
2: yeah, yeah, I mean I. I am mindful of the fact that I have a lot of friends who live here who I have to answer to at the end of the day, Um, So, uh, including some some friends who are going to be like, what did you do? How how dare you? Um, But, um, you know, I am also mindful of the fact that I... Despite sort of partially growing up here, I did also get to have kind of the newcomer's experience. Um, uh-huh. Uh-huh. And so I tried to write the story from that perspective because I thought that that would make a good viewpoint character um, to introduce people who aren't familiar with New York for anything other than its reputation.
1: That's um what Manny does.
2: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, for In my case, even though I had grown up in New York every summer from like early childhood, I'd never really lived here year round. And in 2007, I moved here permanently uh, when I finally got a full-time job here. Um, I moved here permanently, and and it was a completely completely different experience. I actually had a period where I questioned whether I had made the right decision to move here, even though I loved the city, thought that had had always kind of just sort of slowly tried to get to or close to New York. Um, but you know that that first year was physically demanding. Um, I had come from Boston where I needed a car to get around, and I didn't have, like, the, the endurance, the physical endurance to just kind of, like, day-to-day commute in New York. Um, you know, you walk a, a mile to get to a train station. You got to climb up. You know, yeah, down yeah. up four or five flights of stairs to get out. Um, then you walk another mile to get to work and that's just the commute in the morning and then you got to do it again in the afternoon. And if you come from car culture, mm-hmm. um, if you come from a place where you just hop in a car and you go where you, wherever you need to go, it's a, it's a literal physical adaptation to move here. It was a spiritual adaptation to move here. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, had to move into a different neighborhood because I couldn't afford Williamsburg at the time that uh, I came back. Um, so I moved into Flatbush, and Flatbush, Flatbush's character and I, we, we had we had to get to know each other. Let's just say, <laughs> um, you know, it's a Caribbean neighborhood. It's uh, specifically in some places a Haitian neighborhood. Um, I moved into a building that was like Crip Central. Um but the Crips were actually really nice. Like, you know, one of them baked me a black cake every every Christmas, you know. Um I got to know the dogs. They were really friendly. Um, you know, it was just like it was it was a whole new thing. Um and I spent a while relearning or reacquainting myself with New York. I had to I had to get to know the city again. Um so I tried to speak to that part of the experience as well. Mm-hmm. Um so you know, I I intended this to be Uh, accessible both to people who've been here for a while and to people who, who've never been here or who've only visited or who've only seen it on TV and in the movies. Um, and that was, that was basically
0: it. I'm curious, after, uh, the broken earth was complete, did you feel a real need to make a, a break from it and do something different, at least for yourself artistically, you know, more than anything else?
2: No, that was, that was basically it. Uh, the Broken Earth was hard, um, and I've spoken of this elsewhere. But uh, my mother died in the in the course of me writing that trilogy, mm. um, and I had not realized until you know, kind of like two thirds of the way through, um, that I'd begun writing it because, on some level, I'd started to sense that Mom was was entering her last days, and I was kind of engaging with. Motherhood and daughterhood and, and all of my thoughts about that. Um, and that was part of what spun that story. Um, and it was hard. It was just emotionally hard. Um, and, you know, I remember um, basically it was like hmm, five or six months after the third book of the trilogy had come out, um, mom's funeral was in April after the third book came out. Mm. Um, and, uh, the folks at orbit called me to, um, you know, to try and see if I was interested in, in, uh, maybe if I had a new idea, they wanted to try and kind of get me into a new contract. Um, you know, the sales had been very good sure, and, sure. uh, they me down and I, I, I've been, they've treated me well, so I was interested. Um, but I didn't have like a specific novel in mind and my mind was just kind of slowly recovering from all that I had been through and I needed a palate cleanser I wanted to write something fun Um, and that was the only thing that I could kind of think of was like you know I, I pushed off that idea before the idea of um, New York becoming, um, you know, the, the the city we became, the city born great becoming a novel. I pushed yeah. that back because, you know, I had books to write at that time. Yeah. Um, but you know, I, I had sudden freedom and I wanted to do something wildly different, so that was what I came up with.
1: I wonder if it's more challenging uh, when, when you go back to uh, the Hundred Thousand Kingdoms or the or the Broken Earth trilogy, where you control the whole world. I mean, you basically control the seasons, you control the continents, you control the biology. It's it's mm-hmm. classic science fiction world building mm-hmm. uh, where you can make everything the way you want it. And mm-hmm. there's a quotation from George Eliot, of all people, mm-hmm. uh, from Adam Bede. George Eliot hated fantasy even though she was surrounded by it as a victorian writer and she, she the passage goes something like how easy it is to to draw a, a, a dragon or, a, or chimera with the the longer the claws the sharper the teeth the better but when that same when you try to bring your skills to bear on an what's the phrase she used uh, an unexaggerated lion i think the point was it's much easier to write to create your own creatures than to write one that has to be measured against reality. Mm. Is it harder to write a fantasy where you've got to do both? You've got to create your world, but you have to overlay the world on a world which your readers will recognize?
2: Yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> and foolishly, I thought it wouldn't be, but, uh, because, well, scratch that. I thought it wouldn't be because I thought I knew New York. Um, but because, I go at world building in the real world um, in the same way that I go at it in secondary worlds. Uh Um, I want those worlds to feel real. Well, the way to find out if it feels real is to literally go there when you're, yeah. when you're writing something realistic. Um, and that's the part of it that I was kind of not anticipating was that I can't just kind of wing it um, because I actually knew people who lived there and would go there. Um, I needed to go there, too, and make sure that my impressions of the place um, or my assumptions or stereotypes um, were overlaid by reality. Um that's why like i I went and I've made several research trips to Staten Island, where I just like walked around and and you mm-hmm. know, talked to people I went to the the beach i'd never been to the beach in Staten island um you know I went to a grocery store and I ended up having this great conversation with a woman about where to get the best barbecue on the island <laughs> um, you know I mean these are the kinds of things that I kind of needed to do was literally physically go there, literally like block out spaces and and areas. Um, I, I had, uh, there was a scene, there is a scene that takes place kind of early in the novel in um, Inwood Hill Park. And uh, I'd been to Inwood Hill, but I hadn't been there for like maybe four or five years. Mm-hmm. I was trying to kind of like map out that scene based on my memory. And my memory was completely wrong. <laughs> um, so I went, Back to Inwood Hill, and it was just like, I, I thought this rock was, like, over there. I don't understand. I don't remember this entrance. Where'd that tennis court come from? <laughs> you know, like, um, so, so I needed to go there and, like, research the actual, um, the, the the verisimilitude, basically. Um, and so that part of it um, was a lot harder because it just required a lot more physical running around than I mm. remembered than I ever had to do. Um, you know, and I would do the same kind of thing for my secondary world stuff, um, to try and capture that verisimilitude, but because I didn't have to get like the spacing or the blocking exactly right, um, I could do things for the broken earth, like just go and visit some volcanoes somewhere, um, or a, a canyon somewhere and, and, you know, do some research about how volcanoes work, but then, um, you know, if I wanted to know what ash felt like, it didn't have to be specific ash from this one volcano. <laughs> ah. <laughs> so, so that's what made it a little difference was the specificity of it. But, you know, it's the same technique. It just, you know, you, you don't have people to answer to with the secondary world. I guess that's, that's going to be a challenge
0: now as well. The ability to go to the places that you want to mm-hmm. include in the novels and to research them.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. But
1: I there, mean, there, with with Inwood Park, for example, you've got a whole weight of history to deal with as well. Some. Um, uh, I, go ahead.
2: Yeah, I mean, be, because Inwood Hill Park, for those that don't know, um, the the there's a rock there, a little memorial rock with a plaque on it um, that supposedly marks the place where uh, Peter Minuit, uh, the the longtime uh, governor of New Amsterdam, which became mm-hmm. Um, bought the island of Manhattan from the Lenape uh, native people who lived here. Um, and so it's it's an iconic piece of history, but like I didn't know that for the longest time. Um, people just kind of called that area Shirakapak and I never knew why. It's because there was a Lenape village called Chiracapoc that used to be there. Um, and so it's not so much that I have to engage with history. It's that I need to understand what aspects of the present mm. are – what they're what they're coming from. Um, mm-hmm. So I didn't need to like just read history books. I needed to understand what was the basis of the present uh, that I knew. if well,
1: that, that makes sense. But the other thing, I hope I'm not misremembering this, but there, the section uh, I can't remember the name of the area of Central Park that was a, a, a multicultural African American community until mm-hmm. Central Park was built. Seneca uh, Village. Yes, Seneca yeah. Village. Uh, yeah. And that certainly is weight that carries down to the generations to your characters.
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, but that's that's also part of my experience of New York. Uh-huh. I, a black woman who grew up in this city, always kind of, you know, with, with family members or with, with acquaintances, who would tell me that, you know, how much of New York is rooted in, you know, these these histories that we don't ever see show up on Friends or Seinfeld. Oh, yeah. um, you know, and that's just the nature of me growing up with my father and a bunch of his artist friends and scholar friends. Um, but, you know, it was never unclear to me that New York's history um, was literally grown on the bones of of African Americans, enslaved people, and so mm-hmm. forth. Um, but then when I was, oh, maybe in my twenties or so was when, uh, the first set of bones was found under wall street, um, which became the African burial ground memorial. Um, Mm -hmm. and they realized that wall street was literally built on the bones of thousands of, uh, black workers, Latino workers, um, uh Native American workers who died um uh, and were just buried literally on the spot and then they put a building on all these people with unmarked graves um so you know i'd always been told these stories but over the course of my life the stories all got not all but a lot of them you know just got kind of confirmed so yeah mhm i'd always been told the story that um the 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 construction of new york was deliberately designed to disrupt communities of free people of color and poor people and so forth um and i'd always kind of thought that you know the people who told me these things were a little paranoid or you know um you know okay sure sure the the, the young per- young people's arrogance with respect to the stories of their elders um but then as i as i began to research it i started to you know, I learned that, you know, in early 1800s and 1700s New York, um, there were several attempts by uh, poor Irish people and black people at the time to form uh, alliances in order to fight against, you know, the the wealthy upper, upper class uptown people. Mm-hmm. Um, and that a number of city ordinances and laws and literally Central Park um, <laughs> were Put in place to break up that alliance, um, mm-hmm. and it was a concerted effort, among other things, um, because they, you know, the, the one thing they didn't want was like poor white folks and black folks getting together. Um, mm. You know, it was just like so, it's fascinating.
1: That's, that's still there in the city we became. I mean, one of, one of the interesting things about it, which is something that, let's say, Lovecraft would never in his lifetime have recognized, is that mm-hmm. the. Uh, <laughs> The evil forces trying to take over New York, okay, some of them are Lovecraftian supernatural forces, and some of them are already at work there right now. Yeah,
2: yeah. I mean, these these are forces that have always been at work. Right. You know, how can you consider, how can you contemplate something like, you know, a community of of relatively well-off for their time? Not well-off, but, you know, they were like, comfort, they were edging into middle class. Seneca mm-hmm. Village. Um, was a village of free black and, uh, Irish people who had bought homes, who had built lives for themselves, um, who were beginning to develop, you know, kind of some political power. And, you know, Robert Moses plunked a, plunked a park down on top of them Aww. and domained away all of their property. How can you not regard the deliberate imposition of something like that on, on a thriving community as anything but evil? So. And why not call it an existential evil? Because it's, it's a battle for the character or for the soul of the city. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. why not literalize that? There's a,
1: there's there's some interesting passage. I know I keep coming up with other books that just this reminds me of, but. Novel called Ahab's Return, which is yes, it's a sequel to Moby Dick. There's a good deal about Seneca. No, there
2: was a sequel. Oh my God. Okay. Uh, no, no, no. This is Jeff
1: Jeff Ford wrote a book called uh, Ahab's Je- Return. Jeff
2: Ford. Oh. oh okay.
1: And it, it's about Ahab surviving, but Ahab gets involved in New York, and it's it's a New York. It's a very Trump era novel in the sense <laughs> that New York is dominated by the know Nothing Party. Uh, They're horrible uh-huh. politicians. The whole story of Seneca village, the whole story and and the whiteness of the whale becomes uh, there's well becomes whiteness and uh, yeah. which which reminds me of of, of the white lady uh, mm. who is mm. a prominent figure. This is another thing that occurred to me. one mm. of the stories uh actually it was uh, red dirt witch, I think yeah there's a white lady in that too in the, yeah. and I, uh, is there a connection between your white ladies <laughs> uh,
2: other than, uh, my, and, and I guess I have to kind of digress a little bit into, uh, social justice theory. So all the people that, that cringe at the word social justice can close their ears right now. But, <laughs> um, but you know, there's, there's a, a, a theory there that effectively whiteness was created specifically as, as a, as a foil to, um, to forces of freedom, to forces of unity, um, and so forth. Whiteness, yeah. And I don't. I, I'm using this in the capital W sense. Um, before America, you know, and really before colonialism, um, there were lots of white people in the world. They just didn't consider themselves all a single group. Um, there were the French, and there were the Germans, and they what? hated each other. <laughs> You know, but when you come to America, all of that kind of gets slowly eaten away until you end up as sort of generic white. Um, and it's because whiteness is a unifying principle that is used to, to maintain systems of capitalism and oppression and so forth in this country. Um, and it is a force. It is a thing that eats away at that unique character, that unique cultural character of various, uh, European ethnic groups that have come over here. You, when you read stories of like, German Americans consciously like suppressing their culture and their food and so forth, uh-huh. so that they would not be looked at askance during World War II. Um, this is this is a destruction. This is a, a destruction of identity um, and a subsumation of that identity into a kind of amorphous whole. Um, and I find that terrifying. Um, and yeah, so it shows up in my stories over and over again. Not, you know, I, it's not a specific ding at like white people in general, it's a ding at whiteness as a concept. No, there's a, there's a there's whole a whole
1: thing. subcategory of academic studies called whiteness studies now. Yeah, which yeah. deals exactly with that. You know, why why did Irish not, well, Irish Irish needed to consider themselves white after the 1840s because they clearly weren't yeah they had no choice um, they had no choice yeah and and, and, and the yeah. fascinating thing to me about a story like Lovecraft's story is that you can see those old attitudes alive in that story uh-huh. Uh-huh. you can see the way uh, uh a really kind of uh genteel poverty kind of racism that Lovecraft, Lovecraft never had any money he lived with so, mm-hmm. so so you you can see the resentment seething in that, mm-hmm. that he, he absent and and I think part of the fascination with lovecraft is just the absolute terror he had of everything around him yeah yeah he had
2: a white jewish wife and was terrified of jews and i'm like yeah i don't understand it but you know i i i don't feel that level of fear of other groups of people i have fear Hmm. of political entities i have fear of of concepts maybe but i don't have that fear of people and when you read lovecraftian fiction you can get inside the mind of bigotry you can you can feel what bigotry really means to people who genuinely feel that i mean Mm -hmm. as as, you know it's it's a thing that's alien to me but you know he's able to articulate it and i respect the hell out of that i don't ever want to feel that for myself for (laughs) real Um, you know, God help me if I ever do, but, uh, but, you know, I understand better when I read Lovecraft, I understand better how true bigots think.
1: I wonder if some of your empathy comes from your training as a psychologist.
2: (laughs) Well, I I, honestly, I think that it was the other way around. Um, Oh, okay. I I think my father is an artist. I come from a family of artists. My, his father was a musician. Um, and, and my family, um, like I can remember, remember times when dad would just take me for walks and he would point at people and be like, what do you think is that person's story? Um, you know, what do you think, what is, what do you think is going on with that person? What do you feel when you look at that person? You know, and empathy is trained. Mm. Um, and I don't believe that it's something you're just born with or not born with you. You have to be taught to be empathetic. Um, and part of becoming an artist is learning that, that degree of empathy that makes me a good psychologist, um, or made psychology appealing to me. I don't know whether I was good or not. I guess we'd have to ask the clients. Um, uh, <laughs> but, uh, you know, that was the, the artist's eye is what made psychology appealing to me. I don't know that it was really the other way around. Um, so. okay.
1: That's a good, uh, that makes sense. Hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: We recently had um, Ken Liu on the podcast to talk about his new collection, The Hidden Girl. And he put forward the idea on the podcast that um, what we need uh, now more than anything are good stories rather than necessarily good systems. And what he meant Mm -hmm. by that, and I'm paraphrasing it poorly, was that basically the stories we tell ourselves about ourselves are what actually make us behave particular ways and are critical to the kind of lives we lead, cities we live in, Mm -hmm. culture we live in. And I wonder Mm -hmm. how much the city we became is part of that process for you of telling Mm. good stories about the world you hope you could eventually be living in.
2: Mm. Um, Well, it's certainly cathartic to write these stories. Um, When I, when I look at the world as it is right now and I see people's attempts to fight back, um, not succeeding. um, And I, I don't know what to think of that. So I write fantasies in which, uh, attempts to fight back do succeed, and maybe that's mm. the the biggest unreality of my fiction um, but um i I do agree with the idea that systems are dependent on the people who are part of them, so you can establish more empathy if, if if it's too difficult to change the system from the top down, which we've begun to realize it it may not be it may be that it's too much effort to work against the 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 power of billionaires and so forth who have influenced our politics and all of that. Um, if we cannot influence the system from the top down, maybe the solution is to influence it from the bottom up and to, uh, to find ways to encourage and, and increase the empathy that we are able to have for other groups of people that are so different from us. Um, this is one of the reasons why I think it's so important to have representative fiction, um, because so much of the fiction that we read dictates how we think about ourselves, dictates how what we're what we believe we're capable of. Mm-hmm. So, you know, when I was growing up, uh, for the longest time, I didn't think I had a chance to write science fiction and fantasy because, um, you know, I'd grown up reading like all the classic stuff. You know, my librarian steered me right towards Asimov and all of these people, uh, uh Bradbury and all of that. Um, and and you know, occasionally there would be people of color in those books or stories, but they were written very much like middle American white dudes. Um, Uh And, uh, you know, so I didn't, I've been writing since I was a child, but I never believed I could have a career in this field until I was like 30. Um, And uh, it was just because, you know, Octavia Butler was the only one that I saw. And I didn't encounter her until I was a teenager, Mm-hmm. Um, so my formative years were already kind of passed. I'd already made up my mind that even though I love this thing, I can never be part of it. Um, you know, and and this is, this is a thing that affects everyone in our society. If we don't see empathy, if we don't see communities coming together and trying to help each other, if we don't see um, groups of people who are from very disparate f- walks of life all treated as human beings, then we're not going to be able to act on that. Um, and push for better in in our systems and our our power structures,
1: I know we're running a little bit late, but there's one other thing since you mentioned all the people you read growing up, one of the things that uh, uh did impress me before before we started talking about the lovecraft uh, material in uh, in the novel was in uh, how long till black future month there's a story which is a direct response to a Le Guin story, mm-hmm. another story which is a response to heinlein 's the puppet master. <laughs> Uh-huh. a story a story which looks like your version of Stephen King's Misery. Uh, oh my god. <laughs> well, the biggest your biggest fan is your limo driver. I mean, the minute yeah. I see the phrase the, the Brian Aldiss yeah. said <laughs> the most horrifying novel he ever read was Misery because that's what every writer terrifies is somebody coming up and saying, "I'm your number one fan and I'm going to drive yeah. you somewhere now." Yep. Uh, yep. So, it looked to me like you are very well read in science fiction and fantasy and maybe horror fiction. No, oh, thank you. Um, but
2: I'm also very well read in fan fiction, which okay. uh, is all about uh, which is all about kind of a uh, you know remixing existing stuff. So all I mean, right. maybe on some level, I'm, I'm fanficking all those works. <laughs> but yeah, so so that's metafictional uh, uh, stuff is is always fun for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, speaking back to the things that that influence me, and then also kind of. I belatedly realized, limited me or, um, you know, that I, that I feel some kind of way about, uh, makes me feel better. It's, it's one of the ways that I engage with the things that I like and don't like. Mm -hmm. Well,
0: we might wind up there. The city we became is in stores this week and possibly if you're lucky in store right now near you, you can go out and buy a copy, read about it, talk about it. It's, it is a fine time to engage with new stories. We'd and like again, to-
1: if you're in the United States, you can probably drive by and pick it up from a remote location somewhere, <laughs> which is something bookstores yeah. are doing
2: now. Yeah. A lot of bookstores are doing curbside pickup. Yeah.
0: Right. But having said all of that, thank you so much for having made the time to talk to us this morning or this evening for you. It's
2: greatly <laughs> yeah. appreciated.
1: We've really enjoyed it. Thank you so much.
2: Thank you. This was a lot of
1: fun. It was. And until next week, then, this has been the Cood Street Podcast.